collaboration and funding are essential to advancing rare disease therapies. This year, Global Genes will convene the inaugural Rare Partnering and Investor Forum. Join us for this day-long conference to catalyze innovation in therapeutics. The event, which will be held September 14th in Irvine, California, will include networking opportunities facilitated by EBD Group's one-to-one partnering platform, a compelling agenda, company presentations, and a pitch competition that will feature promising early-stage companies vying for a prize purse of valuable goods and services. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash rare partnering. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. To bring new therapies to market to treat rare diseases requires more than scientific innovation. Innovation in financing and business models can be critical as well as the need to find ways to cost-effectively develop new medicines becomes increasingly important. We spoke to Neil Kumar, CEO of BridgeBio, about his company's strategy for developing a portfolio of rare disease therapeutics, why the company's not alone in this effort, and what he's learned so far through this approach. Neil, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about Bridge Bio, new ways of financing rare disease drug development and mitigating risk, and Bridge Bio's approach. Perhaps we can begin with Bridge Bio itself for people not familiar with it. Can you describe Bridge Bio, what it's focused on, and, and its approach? Sure, happy to. Uh, first, thanks for, uh, for taking the time to speak with me. So BridgeBio is a um, clinical stage biopharmaceutical company that focuses primarily on genetic diseases, so monogenic uh, diseases, inherited diseases um, like sickle cell or uh, Tay-Sachs, uh, canonically understood um, germline diseases, as well as uh, genetic cancers, um, for which there are very clear genetic drivers. And uh, the approach has essentially been one where we seek early stage um, understanding of a disease. So we look for diseases that are well-described genetically, where the molecular pathophysiology is well understood, and where we can target diseases at their source with a small molecule or biologic or enzyme replacement therapy, something that that, a type of product approach or modality that's already been precedented. And when we find those starting points, which are generally preclinical, we try to apply our expertise to take that understanding and translate it into products that could be important for patients. Um, and, and so that's, by and large, what Bridge Bio is. And I think that there's a couple things that we can delve into around how we find the programs, how we move them forward, and ultimately the corporate structure that we have that, that makes the kind of financial um, picture a little bit unique. But, but that's sure. Bridge Bio. At a, well, at a point. How are you funded to date? So we um, we are a central company uh, that is financed uh, by a number of uh, institutional investors, um, you know, large private equity firms like KKR and Viking Global, um, and uh, hedge funds uh, in the biotech space like Perceptive Advisors or 
um, Janus or Cormorant Capital, and then and then a few um, other large institutions like AIG. Um, so, so and all the financing comes into a central entity uh, that's called Bridge Biopharma um, that also has uh, expertise in generally building genetic disease companies. And so we have uh, a lot of uh, preclinical expertise like you know DMPK and uh, bioassays and a lot of medicinal chemistry expertise that sits centrally. But then when we find a program, we tend to house it in a separately owned subsidiary, which we wholly or majority own. And within that subsidiary, we place experts that really understand the specific disease that the program is going after because, uh, you know, it's a core belief here that uh, R&D is a game of inches. And when you're going after, especially the diseases we go after where there isn't a lot of precedent, no one's run a clinical trial in that space or or it's a brand new science or new understanding of a of a uh, recently identified disease uh, one really needs focused experts in that space and the right chief medical officer for instance for an inherited cardiovascular disease might not be the right guy to do uh, a germline cancer so within a separate subsidiary for each one of the programs we house a set of individuals that really understand that therapeutic area uh, and then they can prosecute that uh, program along with and availing from uh, expertise for, centrally from Bridge Biopharma. And, and should something be read into the fact that you're you're funded through private equity funds and uh, hedge funds as opposed to, say, traditional venture capital? Um, no, I mean, many of us came from the traditional venture capital uh, scene, but our goal was uh, not to replicate um, – what, it, what was already being done, because the whole reason we started Bridge Bio was that we thought a lot of early stage innovation that was just simply product oriented and not necessarily new science or platform oriented uh, was going overlooked. And so to really move these programs forward, which we thought could be really beneficial for patients, uh, but that didn't appeal to the current uh, venture model, um, we had to bring in new types of investors to the uh, to the early stage space. So instead of um, focusing on broad platforms, um, you know, in, in areas like cancer immune therapy or new modalities like CRISPR or mRNA, we tend to focus on um, very, very discrete uh, product-oriented plays, um, but, they're, but they're starting, you know, in the preclinical early stage. And, and that turns out as a basket approach um, is more appealing to um, different types of investors, not so much VCs. So the company has actually said it's a drug product engine as opposed to a novel science platform. Can you expand on that a little? Yeah. So, I mean, I think by and large, um, a lot of companies that, that, that start up in the early stage biotech space um, start with um, start with a, a set of scientific uh, theses that are very exciting. And, and part of the, the rationale for the company is really to get world-class scientists to really understand and further the science. And then once the science is gotten to the right level of understanding, then you start to develop products against that and hopefully many, many products. And so that cycle can take a long time and um, and ultimately be very productive. Um, but we thought that there was a whole host of other opportunities that were really sitting on top of a decade plus worth of science that had already been done, if you will, in the academic sector. So, you know, in the in the space of genetic disease, we have a variety of different diseases for which the genetics are understood, the molecular pathophysiology is understood, and there's a reasonable starting point for it. So we're not developing the science behind the disease. We're not figuring out what the pathophysiology is. 
Rather, we're sitting on top of all of that great information, oftentimes working with the investigators very closely that help to illuminate that and trying to translate that into a product then that can be taken into the clinic uh, and hopefully ultimately to the marketplace uh, to help patients. So we see ourselves more like an engineering company, less like a new science company. Well, it's no secret that drug development is time-consuming and risky. Is part of the effort to mitigate the risk come from focusing on diseases where the the cause of the disease is well understood and well characterized and the mechanism of action of these drugs can be fairly readily explained? Yeah, that's a big part of our thesis, which is to say, um, you know, thanks to a lot of the great work that's happened uh, in academia and you know, as part of the ever-decreasing cost of sequencing and patient registries and big data and things of that nature, um, there's a set of diseases, the, the, the human genetic diseases, for which they, there's very um, there's less target risk. And so if you look at it, uh, you know, for a wide variety of diseases that are pleiotropic, you don't precisely know which signaling pathways are important. It's usually a variety of different inputs uh, that are important for the disease to manifest. For the diseases we look at, although they're not, you know, they're not classically super simple, but they're but they're relatively simplistic compared to those uh, more general cases. And and for the diseases we're going after, the target's been validated in the human experiment, if you will. That means you get the mutation, you get the disease. So we know at least at some base level that a mutated protein or the loss of a certain protein is what's driving the disease. And so if we can do something about that, we feel like we have a better chance of doing something about the disease. And um, and so that that's a big part of what increases our probability of technical success. And it's still low. It's just not, you know, all-comer drug is like 5%. And, and historic analysis of this space suggests that our probability of technical success should be somewhere closer to 19%. So, you know, most things are still going to fail. But, um, but you know, this is a more rational approach to diseases that are just a little well uh, better understood. Part of what's driving your approach grows out of academic research at MIT's Laboratory for Financial Engineering. It essentially argues for a, a portfolio of projects as a way to mitigate the risk of individual projects. Can, can you explain that a little? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, this is it's interesting. There's the so-called jackpot industries like the oil industry, um, or the movie industry for which these types of approaches have been uh, better applied and, and for some reason they just haven't been as much in the biotech space. But, but it's not, it's not a hard concept to understand. The concept is very simply that if you have a set of risky projects and you need to get one or two of them to actually make, uh, some return, that one wants to look at historical rates of success and create a basket big enough such that one of those is actually going to, you know, is going to occur. One win is going to occur in your basket at a relatively high probability. And so that's kind of what the, the, the work that Andrew Lowe had done out of MIT was to show the benefits of diversification, which is basically just increasing that basket size um, and hoping that you're going to get one, you know, one or two wins in it so that you can drive a return that actually could be quite attractive to a wider variety of investors than those who feel like they have specific bio expertise to be able to call one program versus another. Um, and so that that's kind of our, you know, the thesis that we have tried to extend into what we see as a higher probability technical success space. Well, all we're saying is that, look, if we're taking, you know, 15 to 20 shots on goal, if you will, um, a few of them will be successful, even if we bat at historical averages and hopefully we'll do much better. 
Um, but but even if we do historical average, hopefully we'll be able to drive a return that's um, that's interesting to a broad suite of investors. What's the process for deciding whether to invest in an asset? Do you look for synergies or ways to leverage existing infrastructure and expertise, or is it focused just on that asset and whether it's justified? Yeah, so uh, we we um, we spent quite a bit of time um, at the outset of our company uh, developing a, a mapping of the seven thousand or so inherited disease landscape against like fourteen different criteria. Uh, we looked to prioritize diseases that were well understood, where we thought we could really make a big difference for patients by targeting the disease at its source. And you know, amongst those priority diseases, uh, what we look for are um, you know adequate starting points, great partners that we can work with in terms of academics and, and clinical geneticists um, that want to roll up their sleeves and really work with us uh, to move things forward. Patient advocacy groups that that would like to work with us. Um, and and um, and develop a therapy uh, or help us to develop a therapy uh, for patients, and so uh, all of those things go into the evaluation of of each program that we bring into uh, Bridge Biopharma. It's not necessarily a a um, a synergy thing because I think there's synergy across genetic disease generally in terms of how to prosecute these programs. There are certain therapeutic areas that we're better in than others, so I would say we. You know, we do more work uh, there, but certainly we're always looking to diversify and and do more across, you know, different modalities like biologic small molecules. You know, we have a gene therapy program. We have uh, a couple of enzyme replacement uh, therapy programs. So so we, we, we do look uh, across a pretty broad parameter space. And if something meets a, our fairly high science and medicine bar, I think we'd be willing to do it regardless of kind of stage or... Um, uh, particulars of the of the therapy area, and when it comes to making a decision about killing, advancing, or selling an asset, what role do the subsidiaries or project teams play in that decision making, or is it all centralized? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that they they play the role in advancing the science, obviously, but uh, you know, we um, by rule actually keep the the go no go decisions quite central uh, because. Any particular group needs to be incented to move their program forward. Centrally, we need to be incented to make the right decisions for, for the portfolio level. And um, sometimes that can mean the hard decision of killing something if it hasn't met what we see as fairly rigorous go-no-go criteria on the science side. So, you know, we don't have go-no-go criteria associated with any sort of business elements or, or even expenditure elements. It's more about uh, are we seeing some progress against some very well uh, defined, uh, pragmatic, uh, scientific goals. And if not, then usually we redirect efforts against, uh, another program that could potentially be, uh, interesting. Cause we, we just, we, we feel like there's a lot more substrate. There's a lot of interesting ideas that are going overlooked in the early stage space. And, um, and if something's not moving forward, uh, you know, we'd like to take a crack at, at something else. How do you see your company differing from, say, a, a conventional venture capital firm or an accelerator? So I would say it's, I mean, first of all, you just said it, it's a company, not a fund. Um, and that has a lot of different implications um, for, uh, around differences. Um, but but first and foremost, it's that, you know, we're, we're, we're put on earth here uh, to develop products, take them all the way to the marketplace. It's not to buy and sell products. And by and large, the mission of a fund is to, generate returns for their 
you know, for their investors, that's part of what we're doing. But, you know, we're, we're doing that by fulfilling our mission, which is ultimately to develop, uh, products that, that make a meaningful difference in patient lives. So we have a longer, uh, window, a longer sort of, uh, it's not buy and sell, it's buy and hold, um, type of an approach. Um, and, uh, you know, many accelerators focus on kind of getting, bridging that valley of death, but then ultimately trying to hand off programs, uh, to someone else. That's not really our goal either. Our, our goal is to take, we start very early, so that's akin to, uh, maybe a fund or an accelerator. Uh, but ultimately we, we've taken pro, you know, we have, we have several programs in the clinic now, um, including one in pivotal trials. So, so we are interested in taking these programs. Uh, all the way down the line until we're no longer the best owners of it. So that that's kind of how we think about it and the differences between us and and funds. Do you think you might actually commercialize the products on your own or seek Yeah, that's the, I mean, I think we, you know, what we're we're constantly we're, we're trying to be humble about what we can and can't do. So I think that there's, you know, there's certain products in our portfolio that we'd be uh, uh silly to try to commercialize on our own because we just wouldn't do patients justice. Um but for very very small uh, patient populations where we really know 80% of the physicians that might prescribe the drug and we've gotten to know the community really well as, as we've done the R&D. I think those are reasonable uh, to think about commercializing ourselves. And, and so, yes, I, I would hope that, that we have uh, products like that in the future. It's obviously early days for you, but is there anything you've learned from this model yet? Have you realized benefits you didn't initially expect or tweak the model at all? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, yeah, we've learned a lot, <laughs> I would say, both, uh, both through our mistakes and, uh, and, and hopefully through some of our successes. Uh, I think the model is very amenable to, um, uh, you know, finding, uh, interesting early stage science and really moving it over the valley of death, uh, and ultimately into the clinic. So I think we, we've been pleased with, with how scalable it is and how efficient it can be uh, in doing that and also how well we've been able to attract um, great R&D talent that really wants to focus in on subsets of these programs uh, that they're passionate about. So, so that, I'd say, has been a, a positive, um, I don't know, it's a surprise, but certainly has been fulfilling for us. I'd say the things we have yet to figure out and, um, you know, some of the some of the things that we need to be thoughtful about are as things get deeper into uh, the clinic, how do we, you know, how do we put them together in, um, you know, in, in companies or efforts that are right size because we tend to run, you know, quite lean. And as you get later and later on in, in, into the clinic, there's a lot of staff that's needed and, um, and sometimes a lot of infrastructure that maybe we haven't, we haven't been as uh, adept at developing early. And so, you know, that's one of the learnings that we have is how do we get, how do we even get better going forward at putting all the right infrastructure in place, let's say, to prosecute a, a pivotal trial, because at that point, you should really be thinking about commercial development and, you know, some of the other some of the other aspects of, of regulatory approval that maybe we don't have as deep a bench on that as uh, some of the earlier stage science. So I'd say those are the areas that, that we're learning about. We're always kind of thinking about what's the minimum viable company that can that can move a program forward and, and, and do right for the science and medicine. And I would say that sometimes we, we err um, on the side of being too lean and sometimes, you know, we probably overbuild. And so we're always trying to get that right. And I wouldn't say we have found the magic sauce yet, but we're, we're, we're working on it. And you see this as a model others will replicate? 
Well, you know, I think I think a bunch of people are using this model in a variety of different ways, and certainly we've we've taken aspects of it from from others. You know, you've seen examples of decentralized pharmaceutical companies uh, through the years. Um, you know, certainly J and J is 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 you know the Uber example of this, and there have been conglomerate models in other industries that have that have worked quite well, um, and even you know um, Henry Tremere and and what he built at Genzyme, they had various business units that sometimes operated in separate companies, and, and he's obviously a hero uh, to us. So I think that that um, so, so the model's been out there a little bit, maybe not quite articulated the way we articulated. I think there's several companies that are kind of doing what we're doing from a corporate structure side today. Like you know, obviously Roy Vant um, has been doing this very successfully. Uh, Malin over in England um, has been doing uh, a bit of this with a very similar structure, um, and there's a few others. So, you know, I yeah, I hope I hope we're successful enough that people look at it and say, wow, that's you know, that's an interesting way to prosecute drugs, but we got to prove it out. Neil Kumar, CEO of Bridge Bio. Neil, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. If you'd like to meet Neil Kumar and learn more about Bridge Bio and innovative models in rare disease drug development, join Global Genes for the inaugural Rare Partnering and Investor Forum in Irvine, California, September 14th. For more information, go to globalgenes.org forward slash rare partnering. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.